0: It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly, and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did.
1: My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson.
0: And we're back here with you to talk about movies and other things. Um, how's it going, Commodore?
1: It's going alright this week. Pretty chill. Yeah. Um, trying to get people to call me Commodore. It is not working in this town <laughs> at all. But how are you doing? Hey, you know, I'm okay. Um
0: I got a birthday coming up in a, in a few days. You do, and uh, I honestly, I think that I'm gonna spend my birthday this year
1: doing my taxes and looking for a job. I mean, who says you don't know how to party? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, look, I you know, I think at a at a certain point, I I, I this is probably a common sentiment by this point, but. After a certain age, it's almost like you get like the tens to celebrate, but then all the stuff in the middle is like, yeah. who cares? Like if you turn like 47, <laughs> should you like be going on like an, you know, all inclusive Jamaican trip to really blow it out? It's like, it's just 47, right? But it's also like, I know I also don't want to do taxes, though. That's the thing.
1: <laughs> I don't want to do that. But I feel like you should absolutely celebrate every single birthday, but I think after a certain age, when you're only, you only celebrate the tens with other people yes. and all the in-betweens, it's just on you. Like you can't have a birthday week. You can't have fucking expensive blowout parties for 48. Like, I mean, if you you can if you want. I, don't I'm, Don't let me tell you what to do. But I personally think I'm only going to celebrate the tens with people and yeah. every other birthday I'm on my own to do whatever I want.
0: Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest with you. I think people who do birthday weeks after a certain age, it's kind of like serial killer territory. Serial killer or self-care. Yeah. That would be my entry,
1: I think. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100% that after a certain point and truly I'm going to give you a birthday week in two different in two different instances. You for me, you get a birthday week if you are under the age of eighteen, or you have just recovered from a major illness, that is it. Yeah. If you are celebrating life because you almost lost your life, yeah. or because you're an actual child, <laughs> that I yeah. will give you a birthday week. Otherwise, I am not participating. Yeah. You'll get a birthday from me every time.
0: Yeah. No. 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 That makes sense, and it's actually really funny too because, like, a, a couple weeks ago, I I called my old boss like the night before his birthday. Because, um, you know, he and I still chat, even though I no longer work for him. And all I did was complain. Like, <laughs> I just <laughs> called him and I was like, I fucking hate looking for a job. This sucks. Blah, 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 blah. And it was like, you know, literally an hour before his birthday. And I was like, oh, I guess his birthday present is me complaining about being That's unemployed.
1: <laughs> That's, that is a true adult birthday where you're like, happy birthday. Have you heard this shit? Can you believe this fucking shit? And that is the rest of the discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I
0: feel like that's kind of the mode, really, in uh, the dates in between milestones, is that your birthday is spent doing things you hate and hearing Uh, from people about their problems. So,
1: Including taxes, which, I mean, I would say, why do both? But I understand also the impetus to be like, well, it's my birthday and it's gonna suck anyway, so I might as well do this other thing that sucks.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. I don't know, maybe there'll be like a last-minute celebration, but honestly, like, I've just been like in this mode right now of, you know, looking for jobs. By the way, one of the worst things in the world, I have to say, maybe they don't want you to say that, but it is true. Like, to me, at this point, looking for jobs is like online dating,
1: ugh, this is why I'm out of both. That is a very, I think that is a very true sentiment for my limited experience with both that it seems very true.
0: Well, and I think it's because jobs, I mean, look, look, I had a job for almost 20 years. So the last time I had really like hit the pavement was pretty much, I mean, I won't say it was completely before the internet or social media, but it was like, It isn't like it is now where you have to have your resume, you know, optimized for like search engines. And it's like, it's not even at this point, like you got to know somebody to know somebody. I mean, you always have to know somebody, but you also have to put your shit up on like LinkedIn and Indeed and all this stuff. And that's what makes it feel like online dating to me is just this idea that you have to go into this like social media environment. Exactly. And <laughs> this is probably counterproductive to getting a job because I just want to come, I just want to talk about LinkedIn. It is such a fascinating website.
1: Um, I've never really engaged with LinkedIn and I dipped in once to make sure that they didn't have my information up there. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is a fucking nightmare hellscape.
0: Well, it's like, I don't know. I have so many thoughts about it because here's the thing. I had a LinkedIn profile for a long time because it was like, okay, I worked for like a company and that was kind of standard practice to just have a profile. Like, I'm not saying I looked at it. I'm just saying like, it's kind of like a placeholder, like Facebook. It's like you have a profile, but you don't go in there and doodle around. It's just basically so nobody takes your Identity. Right. So like,
1: I don't know. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's why I checked. I'm like, is anybody out here pretending to be me trying to get jobs? No. Okay. <laughs> we're cool.
0: <laughs> well, and like the thing, the thing about it is that now, you know, I have, you know, I basically um, was given sort of a service to have, um, you know, a coach, like a, I guess it's like a career coach slash resume builder. You know, I'm very lucky for that. I worked for, you know, a a big corporation and then they give you, um you know, severance materials or whatever. And so a lot of the, like, things that I've been hearing, you know, is like, you should be on LinkedIn, you should fill this out, you should get on there every day, you should comment, you should like things, you should connect with people. And I'm just Good like, Lord, wow. So I have to sit on this thing every day. And much like, you know, if you want to find a partner... You have to go into the apps and swipe and start conversations, even though they don't go anywhere. You know, it's just so it's that thing Ugh. of like, oh god, I hate logging into this site and having to like play the game,
1: right? Oh, absolutely, because I I I completely. Maybe it's a matter of self preservation. I don't know what it is, but I have such a strong knee jerk reaction about the fact that we have crafted most of our adult worlds to be busy work. Yeah. Like, I don't want my work to be busy work. I don't need that. <laughs> like, we just fill every fucking minute with some bullshit, and this is just an extension of the bullshit. Like, yeah. you have to be on LinkedIn commenting and treating it like it's Instagram and like it's something... Like, what the shit is... No!
0: Yeah, and it's all in an effort to get noticed and, you know, and and... You know, they say, oh, use your network. Use the people that you know. They can help you out. And, I mean, listen. Like, I think it's a very touchy subject to talk about being unemployed. And I think a lot of people feel a lot of shame around that. And I I worked through all that. And I'm still working through all that, obviously. But I also feel like... I think being transparent about how hard it is is, like, important, too. Because that's the yeah. thing, is that... LinkedIn is this environment where people are looking to get jobs. And so they're putting their best foot forward. I get that. But it's also people that you know in real life to be, like, cool and not that. Like, not this, like, kind of polished corporate version of themselves. And so we're all just in this space, like using kind of corporate slang and being super positive and you know doing all these things that we obviously don't want to do right but it's because we need to eat and pay the rent you know right. and it's it's really bizarre it's a bizarre environment you know what i mean and
1: and because of the fact that like everyone knows what's going on in that way like you you all know what you're doing there and why you're doing it and it kind of creates this false veneer Because it's not, I don't know that it's actually helpful in getting people work or if it just is kind of a placebo type of thing that just makes people feel better about trying to get work. But I don't know if it's actually, I mean, maybe it is, but I I don't know if it's actually helpful to people. Like, I've never heard someone say like, oh, I got a job because I spent 80 hours on LinkedIn for a month and hit somebody because it's like well we're all here doing the same thing you're just talking to other people who are unemployed yeah (laughs) so it's a nice community in that way but it's not like maybe the most useful for getting employment
0: well and like that's the thing too is that like you will frequently see other people that you don't know like on your you know, feed or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's because your friends are interacting with them. So it's that, thi- it's almost like the Instagram thing where I find myself like looking at other people being like, I just got a job. I-, I would love to announce that I just am now the new, you know, president of the United States of America. And I'm like getting, weirdly jealous of it too and i'll sit there and i'm like yeah. oh the stranger got a job and how, you know oh god i can't believe this is showing up in my feed so it is like for all its positivity and all that stuff it does also create this weird toxicity at the same time because it's like yeah. everybody just wants a, jo- a job and to to be employed and then you're looking for a job while watching strangers actually
1: getting jobs and being exactly. successful <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's this, it's the same thing where it used to be like on Instagram where it's like, why am I watching this person traveling to Bora Bora? Like why the fuck am I watching all these people become influencers of their own lives yeah. and only showing us the best of the best and not showing us the moments where they're crying in the corner cuz they're afraid they can't fucking pay their electric bill. Like yeah. that's what I need from LinkedIn is can we just talk about the fear and and the emotions that we're going through yeah. right now, that we're now that we know we're all in this position, can we talk about it? And no, it's you still got people popping up being like, P.S., I'm marrying Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I don't have to ever work again. And you're like, What? <laughs> I know. Like, how is this? I don't need to see this shit on LinkedIn.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing too that has complicated it, I mean, you know, be like, obviously, this is such an emotional time you know, for anybody who's struggling to find work and, like, you know, whatever it is and whatever way you go about doing it. But it's this thing of, like, I also am having a hard time trying to figure out, like, because so much of the modern vernacular about getting jobs is about being a brand and branding yourself and creating an identity and being a brand and this stuff. And you're just, like... What is my brand like? I'm like (laughs) this is so bizarre. Like I'm like I I understand that um maybe simple intelligence and competency is no longer sexy, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's (laughs) like you have to be a brand and do a do a whole
1: song and dance. Uh, and what does that bring to a company? If everyone working for you is a brand, they are literally not focused on your company; they are focused on themselves. What does that give you to hire someone who is a their own brand?
0: Yeah, I I I don't actually know because it is like that kind of thing too. Is that when you, at least for me, when you come across somebody who is a brand in a very extreme way, you're like, ugh,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Like, you know what I
1: mean? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I know. That's the fuck of it, too, where I'm like, again, I completely understand. And I'm so glad you're talking about like all the emotions that go into this shit because you're like, yeah, I I can see what you want me to do. I don't want to do it like for my own benefit and like my own life would be worse if I had to do that. Like, I would not like myself as much if I had to be that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that I don't have a skill set and that I don't have, you know, I have done something consistently over a certain amount of time and you know I I, but I don't see that as like a brand in that way like I just see it I'm like oh I have just have been consistently interested in something and I have worked towards it yeah and I think that you know because when I was like talking with my coach or whatever they were suggesting oh go into your LinkedIn and like you got to write like a whole like novel about yourself (laughs) like you have to tell people who you are and you know and all this stuff and I was like that's so strange to me. Like I don't have a problem with that, I guess in theory, but it feels kind of strange to be doing it on yeah. this website. And it just feels like a false environment. I guess that's maybe what it is. And, yeah. and 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 being encouraged to create a brand for yourself is is so bizarre to me.
1: It's and else it's it's very strange and I I don't again like I kind of always lean back on what what is this serving for me yeah. to create this brand versus me just being a person who's like, here's here's, here, here's what I've done. Here's what I like. Here's what I can give you. Is that not enough? Like, I don't know how to create a brand for myself. And I also don't know who that's serving. It's not serving me. Yeah. <laughs> so like, is it just making it more, you're just kind of turning yourself into like a bite-sized chunk that somebody can just digest really easily? Because yeah. that doesn't feel right either. Like, why don't you want to do the work of getting to know who I am
0: yeah. if we're going to
1: be working together? Yeah.
0: Well, and like I, I don't know. I keep going back and forth on whether or not it's because we're just like fucking grumpy Gen Xers that this was like totally sus for so for us. Like it, it's in our DNA to be like suspect of brands and things like that. And this is just like a modern way of 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 selling yourself, you know, and 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 explaining to employers yeah. like what you offer. But it's. I don't know. It's so, it's so strange.
1: Resumes have always sucked. Let's just put it out. Like having to write a resume or a CV has always sucked. But there is that different, I think that what you're feeling now is is something that I have felt. Because let me put it to you this way also. Unless you get on like a modern family type show as a TV writer, you're looking for a job every six months. (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah. I'm constantly looking for new jobs yeah. at least once or twice a year. Yeah. And thankfully, I have a team of people that will help me with that. Like, I have an agent and a manager who go out and find those jobs and bring them to me and say, Hey, do you want to do this? But I'm still having to do the interviews where, like, you have to talk to the person and you have to talk to the showrun. You have to talk to this, you have to talk to that. And yeah. you still have to sell yourself every few months to yeah. someone else. And I so know. I get it. I get it. But it's also, but that's why I kind of question the branding aspect of it because I'm like, all right. I would rather have a conversation with someone that's like, you know, and I like those conversations where it's like, this is who I am. You know, you already know what I've done. This is more of a conversation about can we work together? And that I'm comfortable with. Yeah. That feels less like, but the the branding of the like, we don't even want to know who you are unless you can show us some razzle dazzle. That freaks me out. Yeah. Like it just seems like it's a barrier to people even getting to want to know if they want to hire you. Like it's just an extra hurdle that I think is unnecessary. So I think your your reaction is feels right to me that like, why am I going, why am I doing all of this? I have no problem letting people know what I'm into and who I am. And like you are great on paper, but you're also great in person. And I don't think it's a problem for you to like get an interview and talk to people. That's not it. It's just like, why do I have to do this hurdle? (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> of like making myself more appealing to you.
0: <laughs> well, and like, yeah, I mean, I gosh, the thing that I I, 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 it's not surprising necessarily, but I get like this process of of being unemployed and getting laid off and everything is is just it's so emotional. It's like an emotional yeah. time, and there's so many different thoughts. There's so many different like things that you have to like psych yourself up for you know to just even like get up and get going and mm-hmm. you know or to organize your day to not doom scroll jobs that are not something that you can apply for because that is something right. that I was doing at the beginning where I was just like I was almost confirming my own bias about things where I was like see, there are no jobs. I'm never going to find a job because I'd be scrolling fucking healthcare jobs, like the, uh, right. you know, a field that I don't even work in at all. But they were coming up, you know, as part of like a job search, like a really easy, <laughs> right. breezy job search on these websites. And I was just like, oh my God, like it's, it's never going to happen and blah, blah, blah. Um in the same way that you go on dating apps and you're just like all these people I can't date nobody writes me back and I'm you know it's it's, it's the same instinct of of rejection right. or something like you're confirming your own rejection and I had to tell myself like get out of this because you know this is this is not serving you and so No. And there's just so many things that I have to like talk myself through and you know, obviously, like you still go to therapy and you talk to people, and but it, it's it's such a mixed bag of emotions, and it's. Yeah. I mean, I knew that it was going to be intense, but I also didn't, and um, yeah, you know.
1: So, well, I am like like I said, I'm glad you're you're talking it out and talking it through in your real life with therapists and friends, but also on here because I think it is a whole new world and it's very interesting, and it's like there's. There's a lot of hardship that comes with being unemployed. And I think a lot, most of it is the emotional work of trying to, trying to feel okay every day, basically. Like trying to feel a sense of worth, trying to feel a sense of purpose, trying to feel like you're not, you know, doom scrolling or just committing yourself to thinking negatively about things all the time and like confirming your own bias. It's a lot of emotional work. It's yeah. a lot of emotional work. And I think, you know, again, I can't fault anyone for doing anything they can to try to get out of that and get a job and get <laughs> get out of that cycle. Um, but LinkedIn just sounds like, I, I just question everything about who it's helping and who it's serving, if most people who use it feel like that.
0: Yeah. And, and I, um, you know, I know that there are people who, love it and who have found success with it i mean shit i hope to i'm i'm still you know like that's that's the thing is that like i hope it helps but it's it's just a weird it's just a weird world you know and like the whole like modern getting jobs in the modern era is just so different from getting a job in the 90s or like even the early 2000s you know what i mean and so you know, I, but I also feel like taking the stigma out of like talking about unemployment and just like the range of emotions is, I feel like that is important because I, because it's, Absolutely. it's not easy. And I think a lot of people have shame about yeah. not working and getting laid off and that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's, let's just be real about it and try to find some funny things about it. And, you know, I don't know. Like,
1: no, compl- I, look. Let's create a website called Clinked In where you have to have champagne and like clink glasses every time you log in, and you just like one video pop. It's like what, what was that? Um, that fucking chat roulette thing that used to like a oh video God. Would pop up. You, let's <laughs> do a Clinked In chat roulette. Somebody pops up. It's another job seeker, and you're just like drinking champagne or coffee or tea or whatever your fucking drink is and you just clink in and you're like what the fuck's up today? Yeah, I feel like shit too. Or yeah, this is great. I feel awesome. Bye. <laughs> and then another fucking video pops up. Clinked in. Yeah. And then I it. will
0: and then I will merge my business called Pinkton <laughs> where <laughs> the singer Pink comes on and just goes, "I'm coming up so you better get this party started." Like
1: That's all it is. It's just just her singing that to you to motivate you to find a job. Just pink acrobats into the screen (laughs) on some kind of wire. Because you know pink loves a a high wire. So it's just out of of nowhere, like a video, a blank screen pops up. And pink just tumbles down, like tumbles down from a fucking wire suspended in midair and starts singing. (laughs) That is a fucking, <laughs> that is a business I can get behind. Clinked in with pinked in. <laughs> I've never felt better. Like, honestly, between these two <laughs> to these two websites, being
0: unemployed is so fun. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> well. Oh, God, I love it. Also, I know, maybe we can save this for next week. Okay. Because I know you saw Magic Mike, and I haven't seen it yet. Magic Mike, the third one. Mm. And I'll tell you. I have heard some things, so I'm interested in your thoughts. We'll save it for next week, maybe, or for a bonus. But I'm not going to see it yet. And I might not see it at all because my man Steve Buscemi is not in it. That's all I asked for. Can we get Steve Buscemi naked <laughs> on screen somewhere? You are
0: horny for Steve Buscemi. Maybe I we should do an
1: episode. What the fuck? Oh, my! I, I'm too embarrassed. I can't. No, I no, can't. no.
0: I Don't be. Uh, because I have to tell you, like, I think it's because Brendan Fraser is back in the news, but that like people are posting photos from Airheads. Do you remember Airheads?
1: Of course, I remember Airheads.
0: And I'm like, yo, these guys all look good. Steve Buscemi and Airheads,
1: damn. He often has long look. I'm just saying, if you like me, have recently got the hots for Steve Buscemi. <laughs> there is a Charlie Rose YouTube video for you where he has very long hair. And he looks great. Yeah. Dude, look, okay. Put him in Magic Mike. That's all I'm saying. I don't think he would want to do it, but I want to see a Busemi version of Magic Mike, and that's all I got to say about Magic Mike.
0: Look, okay, we're going to put this on a bonus episode. We're recording one soon. We're definitely talking about this shit. In the meantime, we have to workshop some kind of Steve Busemi theme for the podcast because you have to exercise all of these
1: all I've, I've got. I'm giving myself one more episode to talk it through. <laughs> <laughs> I will not do this to you, or our listeners, or even myself for the rest of the year. So we'll do one more episode. <laughs> it is clear that I've got the hots for that dude, and I'm giving myself one more one hour chunk to dis- to discuss it. it. Yeah, put it.
0: it that that'll be like the penultimate. Like we'll just have it encased in amber for all of prosperity. Prosperity. For all of posterity. Prosterity? Is it posterity? Posterity? (laughs) Look, we went through pros. (laughs)
1: Prosterity. And I think what you're going for is posterity. Posterity? Oh, my
0: God. Jesus Christ.
1: Too many R's. It happens. Too many R's. (laughs) We're talking about. Whatever
0: it actually is. (laughs) We're going to have it. And, and you know, that'll be like kind of like your final yeah. dance, your last dance, your much last, last dance.
1: With Mary Jane. And let me tell you, it will, and this is what always happens to me. It always happens to me. This podcast is a blessing and a curse in this way. Whenever I say I have the hots for someone who works in the field that I work in, invariably their name comes up in an, some kind of interview, or their name comes up in some kind of a meeting, and I'm like, I can't work with them because I just went hard for two hours on how hot I think they are. I know. It happens every fucking time.
0: Yeah, you just utter the name, and the next thing you know, you're about to have a meeting with them, and you're like, I can't.
1: I can't. I can't do it.
0: We can't work together because I just talked about your boner for
1: an hour. (laughs) They're like, how about he directs this thing? And I'm like, get another writer because I can't. I have now dug a hole, a boner hole for myself that I can't get out of. We are doing this episode. Let's do. How about we do this episode, the one that we have prepped for today?
0: Let's let's (laughs) do it. Yeah, so let's talk about our theme this week, Danielle.
1: Okay, and we do have to talk about it. So our theme this week is, Papa, Can You Hear Me? And (laughs) the reason I need to talk this out is because I kind of, as I was watching my movie, I was like, wait, I think I was going for something more lighthearted when I suggested this theme, and then I picked the darkest possible movie for this theme. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But I think what we originally were going for were movies where teenage girls were kind of at odds with the 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 parents or the yes. dads. Yes. Um and I just have to apologize for yours is so lighthearted and and within the theme within the bounds of the theme and then I have to apologize for taking it to the darkest possible fucking place. <laughs>
0: listen i I now you're just you know returning the favor of me picking all that jazz for this you know <laughs> so, like afternoon on the couch with a cold theme, so it's like you know w- we always have that sometimes like the theme is like ironed out, and we know what it is, but then we just go real fucking dark, and I don't know it happens. <laughs>
1: Sometimes we just want to talk about these dark fucking movies. And it just, but I'm, I'm, I still love this theme. And I promise if we do this theme again, I will match the energy of the theme with the lightheartedness with which we, we originally conceived of it. Yeah. Um, But I'm psyched because I think there are, there are definitely a lot of movies where that we could have chosen for this. And I think there are definitely a lot of films where, we're kind of showing teenage girls in a particular way that's, like, bratty or shitty. And I feel like the movies that we kind of gravitate towards that would fit in this theme are more kind of showing the full scope of humanity of a teenage girl and, like, treating them like full human beings. Um, so I'm kind of psyched that we, we came up with this.
0: Yeah, and I will say, too, I mean, to your credit, I, I think my film, it is fun, but I think it did kid be dark at times and you know maybe we can talk about that a little bit I mean it it deals with like the emotions and you know mental states of of young girls and so you know it's like it's not I mean I think it's the movie itself is presented in this very fun package with lots of cool music and everything but I think there's kind of there's some darkness there so absolutely maybe it's not all you know maybe these two films are dark films put being put together in a weird I way. I think
1: they complement each other really nicely. Yeah. I really do.
0: Well, and I have to say, I mean, if if we just talk about your movie for the entire episode, I am totally chill with that because it's obviously a first watch for me. I actually didn't know anything about the crime <gasps> that it's based off of at all. Like, really? I didn't know anything. And I am fucking ready to talk about it with you. So
1: really yeah. nothing at all. Nothing.
0: I think I'd heard of her name. You know, gotcha. just had heard the name but I I didn't know anything about the crime, anything about the details. And then, you know, just knowing that your film has so many like, you know, famous really talented actors in it is it's just int- this is whole this whole thing is so interesting to me so I can't wait to talk about it.
1: Well, we are going to get into it first and foremost. And if you are watching this as a true double feature, I do suggest watching mine first so you have a little bit of a kicker with Millie's movie. So my film was released in 2007. It was written by Tommy O'Haver and Irene Turner and directed by Tommy O'Haver. My film is An American Crime. How long until Sylvia's out of the basement? Until she learns her lessons. So... As always, I'm going to start right out by saying this is not a true crime podcast. I am presenting a movie that is based on a true crime, uh, but it is not a documentary. And I will do my best to honor the subject, but do not come at me for your weird, arbitrary, this is how we talk about true crime statistics that I'm not aware of, because that's just not my bag. (laughs) So I'm sorry if you don't need to hear that disclaimer, but some of you do. (laughs) And I know that we are currently sitting in the house that My Favorite Murder built. So you're like, how dare she say that she's not going to talk about it in the right way. I'm going to do my best. But I will also say that Karen and Georgia did an episode on my crime. It's episode 16. It's Chandra Levy and Sylvia Likens. And that is a great episode to listen to. If you do want to hear about the true crime in the true crime way that you're used to hearing about it and not in the movie reviewer way that I'm going to talk about it. Yes. <laughs> so just, again, some of you don't, most of you don't need to hear that, but some of you have already got your type and fingers ready and I'm going to tell you to just take a nap, have a cup of tea instead and just listen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So with that in mind, though, mm-hmm. I will say that this film has stuck with me from the first time I saw it in 2007. Mm. Um, I think a large part of it is that the, the horror of the true crime has stuck with me. But I also think that Elliot Page is such a great actor. And he's always been able to... He's the kind of actor that whenever he cries, I'm crying. Like, he yeah. is so emotionally keyed into these characters that he's playing that I can't help but have a reaction and an emotion and I just I I love it. I think he's he's such a great actor in general, but in that way in particular, like eliciting emotion. And I think that's what was necessary for this character um, because the story is so horrific that you really needed someone to kind of pull you into the story to empathize with. Yeah. So you've never seen this film before. Mm-mm. How many nightmares did you have? A
0: hundred and twenty-five. Like it, it was. I. I don't know why I like. I need to not watch your movies at night. <laughs> Look, like that I'm should be a hard fast <laughs> rule for my life. <laughs> I'm always watching your movies at night, like late at night. Like usually, like I don't. Sometimes I'll get cracking on your film till like 10 p.m.
1: Oh, that's a big mistake. And I'm looking ahead at the calendar and telling you you better be watching these at noon. Damn, for at I least know. another two months. At least another two months.
0: I know. And again, I was like, why did I do this? It's like the <laughs> fifth or sixth time that I had a sleepless night because of your fucking movie. But, you know, but then also, I mean, you know, part of it is that, too. I, of course, I had to like go down the research hole, you know. Oh, totally. And I, all I, all I did, all I have to say is all I did was read the Wikipedia. That was enough. which is bad
1: enough. It's exactly. bad enough. <laughs> oh, I know. That is bad. It is I detailed was sh- and bad.
0: Yeah. I was shocked by, how detailed it was, just the Wikipedia article. But it's like I get it. Like now I'm gonna go listen to Karen and George talk about it. Of course I'm gonna do a little bit more of that. But yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. like I and, and to me, I didn't I didn't realize that I didn't really know anything about the movie at all and who was in it. But then when I saw, oh, it's Elliot Page and Katherine Keener, I was like, holy shit! How did I miss yeah. this movie? Because I love Katherine Keener,
1: so it's like absolutely, it's weird, you know, I know it's because it, you were in that 2007 K hole. <laughs> We are like, it's 2007 in reality, but in my film-watching life, it's 1967. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know everybody knows that in the 2000s, I lived inside of a rock in France with the, <laughs> with the two women who were allergic to 5G. I just I, like completely checked out of... I was off the grid. I don't know why I, didn't, I don't watch movies. I never watched all these movies from the 2000s
1: or later. It's crazy. I was so. off the grid. Well, <laughs> well I'm... At once pleased and apologetic that I was the one who had to introduce you to this film. <laughs> of course. And give you yet another nightmare. <laughs> but it is such a, it's a it's a fascinating and horrific story. And I'm going to, again, rarely do this, but give a disclaimer that this movie and this discussion that we're going to have involves... Um, a lot of intense child abuse. So if that is not your bag, you do not have to listen. Um, And we respect that fully. But And I'm not going to go into great detail about the facts of the abuse um, because I don't like to glorify that kind of thing. I am also a survivor of child abuse, not to this extent. Um, But I don't think we need the gory details to kind of drive home uh, the nature of the story. But if you don't want to hear about it at all, totally fine. Just want to throw that out there. So... Before I talk about the film, even though I gave a big disclaimer about how this isn't a true crime podcast, um, I do think that I want to give some some. I do want to honor the story in some way by telling you about the real people involved. My first, <laughs> my first fact, which is it still blows. My, I cannot believe it, it still blows my mind, and this might help with your nightmare situation. The movie that the director, Tommy O'Haver, did directly before this was Ella Enchanted. So just put that in your head, that Whoa. he went from Ella Enchanted to this. Wow. Quite, quite a shift. Quite a shift. Quite. I mean, 180, like you wouldn't believe. And so this is the story... In American Crime is a, is a true story of Sylvia Likens. It's L-I-K-E-N-S. Who was born uh, January 13th, 1949. And she was the third of five children born to uh, her parents, Lester and Betty Likens. The family really struggled financially. Uh, and her parents kind of had an unstable marriage. You know, times of bitterness and unhappiness. Um, but stayed together. And they often... Worked the carnival circuit. They worked in food concessions um, on the carnival circuit to make a living. And Sylvia was born in between two sets of fraternal twins, which I think is interesting. So her other siblings were twins, and then she was right in the middle. And she and her sister Jenny were often discouraged from working the carnival circuit. Ironically, because her parents were very concerned with her safety and education. Oh, so heartbreaking. So Sylvia Likens um, was described as a very pretty girl, um, very confident. Um, she loved music. She particularly liked the Beatles, and she was incredibly protective of her sister Jenny, uh, who had polio and walked with a brace. Um, but by all accounts, she was incredibly confident. Her friends called her "Cookie," um, and she kind of she smiled with her her mouth closed uh, because she was missing a front tooth due to a fight she'd had with one of her brothers. Like her, she and her brother were tussling around, and she lost a tooth. Um, when she was about seven years old. But just like, you know, you look at the pictures of her and she was just very, just a, a your typical 1960s teenage girl, um, by all accounts. And at one point, her father, Lester, arranged for the girls to live with Gertrude Banerjewski Bener- in um, Indianapolis. And Jenny and Sylvia moved in Shortly after July 4th in 1965, where over 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 time, you know, they'd only live with her for a few months and it would be the worst three to four month stretch of anyone's, that anyone could possibly imagine. And the reason that her parents decided to leave her with Gertrude is that Gertrude already had children of her own. Gertrude had seven children and was kind of like, yeah, like there's a lot of kids in this house and I can take care of them. And Gertrude was... um She was ill. Um, She had some respiratory illness and asthma. And she took in laundry to make a living, but it wasn't really kind of cutting it. So she decided to take in Sylvia and Jenny primarily for the $20 um, paycheck that she would get every couple of weeks for taking care of the girls. But it seemed like they would fit right in, and that's not the case. So what happened over time... Very quickly, over the first couple of weeks, were fine. You know, Sylvia helped around the house. And um, so Gertrude had seven children uh, Paula was 17, John was 12, Stephanie 15, Marie 11, Shirley 10, and James um, and Dennis, who was 18 months. And the reason I mention the children's first names and their ages is because they will come into play in the story as we go on. So Sylvia and Jenny kind of had a lot of ways to fit into this family. They were children their own age. They were, you know, girls their own age. Um, and they were helpful around the house. And they just, you know, it was kind of like a, an adventure for them. They were used to being left with relatives um, because, again, their parents traveled for work and left them with relatives a lot. So it didn't seem that out of sorts, even though they didn't know Gertrude, that they would be kind of left to be cared for at someone else's house the other thing I will say as we go through this story is just keep in mind the time frame we're dealing with here because I know that you're going to have a reaction that's like why didn't they do this why didn't they do that it was 1965 and I think the way that they portray it in the film is pretty accurate that there were just certain social um, constructs in place that made it that made something like this more possible so just keep that in mind so the girls are living with Gertrude. Everything's fine. One week, Lester's check doesn't come, and Gertrude's reaction is to beat the girl, to beat the girls, and she starts to beat Jenny. And Sylvia can't take it because Jenny can't take Jenny can't take it. So she says, I'll, "I'll take hers." That's how they present it in the movie. And Sylvia gets a beating. And even though the check arrives the very next day the way that it's kind of portrayed both in the court transcripts and in the film is that the wheels of abuse were already in motion then at that point. Mm-hmm. And there's also a point in the film where you realize that Gertrude's own children had been subjected to her abuse for years. So when things certain things are happening to Sylvia, the kids are like, well, that's just kind of what mom does. Like, mom just kind of puts cigarettes out on you when she's upset. So they've already experienced it. It's a house that was just rife with abuse already.
0: And um, in the movie, it seemed that there was a lot of this, like, kind of religious angle Mm. to it, too. Um, Absolutely. I don't know if it was like that. I mean, I'm sure it probably was in the real story, but that just always, I don't know. It just always, like, freaks me out when it kind of reminded me a little bit of when we talked about frailty, Right, you know, uh, during that um, that Father's Day episode with with the (laughs) Bill Paxton, you know, character who was kind of invoking all of this religious stuff in order to like justify crimes and abuse and that kind of stuff it just it's just always very disturbing to me when that happens
1: oh absolutely because this is a this is a family and sylvia and jenny went to sunday school and they went to church and you know and gertrude did as well and her kids did as well and there was always that kind of that that sheen that kind of pallor of religion that was supposed to excuse any bad behavior but how do you excuse bad behavior when it turns murderous you know it's it's just it it is interesting the lengths that people will go to or the way that it's shown in this film as the lengths people will go to to use religion as an excuse um and it's just and again it's it's becomes more sinister when you realize that you know god won't help Sylvia nothing will help Sylvia and she loses her faith in very quickly loses her faith in god and the world around her. Hmm. So a lot of what I've the information that I've pulled for this is from uh, an article in the Indy Star INDY Star by Don Wright wrote an article about the the history of this case. There's also books there are Books on the case. There are other podcasts who have covered the case. There's a lot of information out there, um, but I found that article from the Indie Star and the combination of you know things I found on Wikipedia to be to kind of create the most the full the fullest picture um, of what happened. So the girls are living with Gertrude and her family. The abuse begins. Sylvia is taking the brunt of it, and. Even though, again, I don't want to get too much into the abuse, it escalates so quickly from neglect and beatings with a belt to Sylvia being belittled and sexually humiliated, um, beaten, starved, cut, burned, and dehydrated by her tormentors. Um, Her autopsy showed 150 wounds across her body, Mm-hmm. including several burns, scald marks and eroded skin. And it's, it's, again, horrific. But one thing that I kind of questioned in the beginning until I saw it play out in the film is what about Jenny? And unfortunately, in real life, Jenny was intimidated into occasionally participating in her own sister's torment. Mm. and you can see in the film, and I'm going to talk about the film specifically in a a minute, but you can see in the film where Gertrude starts to groom Jenny in a way that's like, you know, you don't want to be like your sister, kind of using fear and intimidation to kind of showcase like, well, if you don't do what I say, then you're next, or this could happen to you as well. Yeah. So that's just, again, a heartbreaking detail. So this horrible abuse happens over the course of a few months, a couple of months, and when Banner when Banerjewski realizes that Sylvia is dying or might be dying, she forced her to write a note saying that a bunch of boys had beat her and that she was like at a sex party in the woods or something like that. And the plan, again, this comes from the Indie Star, the plan was to blindfold her and dump her in the nearby woods with a note. Um, but Sylvia tried to escape and Gertrude and one of her boys stopped her and beat her again and threw her back in the basement. And Sylvia tried to escape a couple of times. Because again, that's a question that will come up for you, I'm sure, as you're reading about this case or listening to a podcast or (laughs) watching this film. Why didn't she try to escape? In the end, she did. She tried to escape a couple of times. But because she was so malnourished and her body was in such terrible shape, and she couldn't do it. She physically could not escape, even though she made her best effort to escape in the end uh, when she realized that she was essentially going to be killed. Uh, Sylvia Likens died. On October 26, 1965, the official cause of her death was homicide caused by a combination of internal hemorrhaging, brain swelling, shock, and severe malnutrition, as well as the extensive damage to her skin. And she was buried in the Oak Hill Cemetery in Lebanon. And her gravestone says um, her epitaph is our darling daughter. So the shockwaves of this case were felt far and wide. Again, this is 1965. And there are things about the case that, in one way, you think, well, this could have very easily just been a case that disappeared out of the news. But as the Indy Star points out, the few things that make this case indelible and unforgettable are a few key items. One, The first being that, The abuse was not just carried out by Gertrude. Her own children, some of them, again, as young as 10 years old, and other children in the neighborhood for weeks and even months contributed to the torture of Sylvia as if it was casual entertainment. So again, according to the Indy Star, the quote here is that it was something to do in the afternoon before dinner or favorite TV shows. At least a dozen children participated or at least watched, and none felt sufficiently disturbed to tell their own parents. Other adults occasionally came to the Banaszewski house uh, for certain reasons, and they saw Sylvia's battered state and, again... Nobody pushed for her safety. Nobody pushed to ask any questions. The neighbors routinely reported after this case came out and was revealed, the neighbors reported that, yes, they heard screaming. Yes, they saw her trying to escape. Nobody did anything. And again, you know, Sylvia and her younger sister had opportunities to tell adults at church um, or at school and... Neither said a word because they thought it would only make things worse. So they were in such a state of abuse that they could not and didn't see a way to supplying their own safety. Mm. So again, it's just truly horrific in every possible way. And Sylvia's death was just... a spectacular failure of multiple people on several accounts, but particularly that Gertrude uh, Banerzewski was just a monstrous person who had no business taking these these two girls in to begin with. So in the film, there is... We start the film with the trial, essentially, because there was a trial um, that happened after all of this came to light. And Gertrude claimed... That she wasn't guilty and she was kind of like, oh, my kids must have done it. Like she was just fully unwilling to admit what happened. And she maintained that that posture uh, until a couple of years before her death. Um, But she was convicted of first-degree murder and her daughter Paula was also convicted and found guilty of second-degree murder. Richard Hobbs, Ricky Hobbs, who was the neighbor who particular who participated in the mutilation of uh, Sylvia Likens' body, along with John, again Bennerzuski's son, ten year old son, and another neighbor- neighborhood boy, Coy Hubbard, they were all convicted of manslaughter. Mm. And Gertrude would sent. Gertrude and, pa- and Paula were sentenced to life uh, at the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. The two boy the the boys were sentenced to um, kind of two year to twenty one year terms in Pendleton. Um, but Paula pleaded guilty to the lesser charge, and she served about two years in prison. Uh, the three boys were released on parole for good behavior in 1968 after serving about two years of their sentence. And Gertrude was released from prison uh, five years before her death. And I don't think anyone involved in this case served enough time for what they did to this this girl. Mm. Uh, in real life. So it's interesting that the film starts out with the court case because what we're watching at first is, again, just kind of a... a, We're just jumping into the story and watching all of these children on the stand recounting what happened. And so it's instantly very disturbing. But the film does such a good job of showcasing kind of how these two girls became kind of... Intertwined with Gertrude's family, and also really showcased right off the bat that Gertrude was really jealous of Sylvia. She was really uh, Paula was kind of jealous of Sylvia. They had their own struggles going on uh, and just kind of used Sylvia as a scapegoat. Mm. But I thought the film did a good job of sh- of kind of setting up the tone of. You know, we're in. Why are we looking at this court case with all these children as witnesses? And then when you realize what the children witnessed, it's like at turns simultaneously heartbreaking and so pit of your stomach disgusting. Yeah. And part of the reason I think this film really hit home with me and stuck with me, and I think that you know Tommy O'Haver did a good job with it, is that the cast is incredible. So Bradley Whitford plays the um, the district attorney who's prosecuting. Catherine Keener plays Gertrude. Uh again, we're not I'm not used to seeing Katherine Keener be such a mean, cold-hearted bitch. <laughs> and yeah. it was shocking. And she plays it with a lot of, you know, she kind of brings a characteristic warmth to certain parts of the of the film. Like when, you know, she's talking about her baby and the baby's father. And like she does bring a bit of herself to it, but it's not that kind of witty, whip smart funny Catherine Keener that I'm used to seeing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, it's like, first of all, Bradley Woodford and Catherine Keener would be the parents in Get Out like many years later. Completely. But, Completely. But <laughs> yeah, which I think is really, really interesting to see them together in this movie. The thing about Catherine Keener playing this woman, this ghoul, right? I It was like hard for me to see. Like, I there was a moment where... I was like, yes. I mean, everybody thinks Katherine Keener is like such a warm, funny individual, and it—it's almost impossible to really portray an evil character like, like in that way. Like, you know, as an actor, it's probably like you probably have to steel yourself up to play mm-hmm. a character like this. I think for me, it was like, wow, she's really nasty, and then. But I think Katherine Keener really portrayed the. Um, I think it just felt like an exhaustion. Yes. Like she kind of like was like uh, she communicating that this woman, like this character in the movie, like was totally fed up with like her life and Completely. her kids and her failed relationships. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that excuses what subsequently happened, but I'm just saying that, like, Katherine Keener, as a performer, I think, was able to really, like, lock in on that.
1: Absolutely. You and know? it helped. And I, I think we needed that, because, again, when you're looking at the real facts of the case and looking at the real people involved, I'm not sympathetic at all. Yes. And I'm not saying I'm even sympathetic to this woman as portrayed by Catherine Keener, but she gave us a way into understanding how something could escalate so violently um, so quickly. And I needed that. Like, I needed to understand, like, well, was there ever any humanity there? Has she always just been this monster? And I think she did that more than me reading facts about the people involved in the case.
0: I would agree with that, for sure. And it kind of goes back to these conversations that we have sometimes about movies where sometimes you watch a film... Involving horrific things happening, you know. We talked about it with American Psycho. We talked about it with Clockwork Orange. Where it's like sometimes the movie doesn't give you a backstory about this evil th- person, this evil character, and that's really hard to right. to deal with. And I think this is a perfect example, right? Because you're just like, how could this woman be so terrible to these to these pe- to these children, you know? Right, and yet I felt like the movie, in a in a way, had to go there, had to kind of explain what her inner life was a little bit like, because otherwise it would just be like so horrifically sad and fucked up, you
1: know? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. We needed that, I think. And again, it's it's does such a great job of balancing the two, where you don't have sympathy for Gertrude, but you can understand because. I found that like, if I were watching this film and asking that question the entire time, it would have taken away from my ability to focus on what was happening in the film. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad that they did that as a way to just kind of help you again, kind of lock in and focus on what was going on. And it is, again, it's a rough house. And I think that the way that it was set up in the film is that Paula has been dating this married man and he breaks it off right as she discovers that she's pregnant. And so she confides in Sylvia and kind of says, you know, please don't tell anyone, but I'm pregnant. I'm having a hard time. And when Sylvia catches this guy really abusing and kind of roughing Paula up, she stops him by saying she's pregnant. And Ricky overhears it. And Ricky is played by Evan Peters. And again, if this is, if you need any more confirmation, Evan Peters was born to be the creepiest actor alive. <laughs> like even as like a chubby little guy in the 60s like playing this character, he was born to creep <laughs> and he can't help it. It's in his DNA. Born to creep. Um but he overhears and then the rumors start swirling around town. And again, it's 1965, so just imagine this is the worst possible thing that somebody could say about you is that Not just that you've had sex, not that you're dating a married man, it's that you're pregnant. So Paula's way of dealing with it in the film is kind of a very childish way of dealing with it, which is she goes home and is crying and is upset and tells Gertrude that Sylvia's been spreading rumors about her.
0: Mm.
1: And Gertrude's unhinged way of dealing with that is to punish Sylvia. And again she's already punished her for the fact that the check was one day late. And when she starts hearing that Sylvia is kind of denigrating her family members, she's pushed over the edge and she pushed, she or she pushes it over the edge, I should say. And it's really, it's kind of heartbreaking because the whole time that it's happening again, Elliot Page is such a great fucking actor. And the whole time that it's happening, he's just really emoting that, He's sorry, but he's also kind of like, why am I apologizing for telling the truth? Why am I apologizing for helping to save your daughter from being attacked? Like, there's this real emotional upheaval happening in him as he's, you know, kind of portraying this, this you know, portraying the character of Sylvia um, that was just so heartbreaking because you're like, yeah, I, I understand being a child or being younger and not understanding why the world is reacting to me in this way, or why what I did was wrong. But I'm also living in a society where all I can do is apologize. Um, nobody actually cares about my feelings or the truth, and it's just such a conflicted place to be. Um, and plus, you know, Sylvia is trying to protect her sister Jenny this whole time, so it's just this real turmoil. But it kicks off in such an intense way, and again, like the the after the rumor. Mill gets started about Paula's pregnancy, you know, they try to call their parents and they're not able to kind of get out the fact that everything is not okay. And then Gertie starts grooming Ricky in a weird way, like giving him cigarettes and talking about how how she also used to be pretty, as pretty as Sylvia. And it's like a very strange scene to see them on the couch, kind of. But you're watching basically this woman exert power over all the children in her life in various ways. Um, so that eventually, when it comes time to abuse Sylvia, the excuse that John gives as he's unlocking the basement door and leading children down there um, to the basement to abuse Sylvia is, Mama said we can.
0: Oh, that was really hard. That's a really hard scene. Like, yeah. that scene in the basement... With the kids that are going down there to basically... I mean, it's like a... I mean, talk about the carnival. I mean, it's like a show. Mm -hmm. It's like a fucking show for them. I was like, this is, like, rough to watch in a narrative film. You know what I mean? Like, even in a narrative film. Where there's a moment where there's a, a, a girl... Who kind of, likes, like, walks into the scene of Sylvia, and, and then they're, like, putting cigarettes out on her. hmm And they're, like, like, I think, is it John? Is that the, the boy that's, like, yep, kind of encouraging this other, like, much older girl to put a cigarette out on Sylvia? And... It's that thing where he's like, what are you, like, a fucking chicken? Like, do it. Mm-hmm. And then the other kids are, like, normalized. Like, it's sorry, right, we do it all the time. Like, Mom says it's okay. And I'm just like, yo. That feeling, and, like, I think the movie did a good job in that moment, in that scene, to look, to like, it really captured that kind of quandary of this girl. Because... There were times I think in childhood, I mean I'm not saying to this degree, obviously, where you knew something was fucked up and you knew something was bad, but then you have this peer pressure of participating Mm -hmm. in something. And like like the actress who played this girl, I know she was just like a, you know, a, a small character in the film, but it was like a way, in a way, like maybe able to, you know, telegraph that that notion of just being like, here are kids who are doing this horrible thing and they're conflicted. Some of them are conflicted about it. And some of them aren't.
1: Right. And you're just like,
0: wow, that is so interesting. So
1: it's absolutely fascinating. And it's again like to show, to show it in such a carnal and again, I thought the film did a, a great job of this. They showed it in a way that you were aware that to these children, Sylvia was a sideshow freak. You know, yeah. they were going to the carnival to participate in the in the action of abusing this girl. um but it wasn't registering to them as this is something that is we're not supposed to be doing. Like it was just strange to see the turn and how it was filmed and what they were showing. And that you could get that kind of distorted view. Like, the shots became very, like, you know, they were shooting from underneath. And it kind of looked yeah. like a real sh- sideshow in that moment. And it was mm-hmm. a real turning point for the film. Because you understood that, like, there's something happening here that is perversed and has perverted these children. And where they, they can't tell or they're not able to act upon right from wrong. And they're justifying this abuse. And it's just absolutely horrific yeah. to see And, um, you know, in in the movie, Gertie tells everyone that um, they have to lie and say that Sylvia was sent to juvie, but they actually just lock her in the basement. And, and, you know, it's just, again, like this, the series of abuse that's happening to everyone in that house and the level of abuse that's happening to Sylvia is unfathomable. It's truly, and imagine this, it's unfathomable to me now. Imagine this happening in 1965. Um, So... I thought the film did a really good way of, again, showing and answering, even if it's not an answer you want, (laughs) they're showcasing and answering how all of these people participated and no one helped Sylvia. And there were other in real life, you know, in the real case, there were five other neighborhood children who were implicated in this crime, um, but none of them served any time and the charges were eventually dropped. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is something that I couldn't get out of my head also, like in seeing how they're showing Indianapolis and how they're kind of showing small town America is in the aftermath of this, a lot of people moved and changed their names, but a lot of them didn't. And imagine living in a culture, living in a town, living in a society with people who are capable of this abuse, yeah. and they're your neighbors, and they're your school teachers, and they're your minister—like these people went on to have lives. Yeah, and I just can't get my wrap my head around that. That like these, like yes, a couple of people were put in jail, but most of the people involved with this abuse went on to live lives where they got married and had kids and became your neighbors and people in your fucking grocery store.
0: Yeah, and I mean, even just reading the Wikipedia article too, they all died young. It seems like I very mean, not like young. they weren't old. I mean, especially the one kid I think that is Ricky he, Hobbs. He died yeah, it,
1: at twenty-one of lung cancer.
0: Wild, wild, yeah. But they I,
1: all like died in their fifties or forties, or like they all died very young. Mm. Yeah,
0: I, I, I mean, I just. After reading all, all, you know, a lot of the details on Wikipedia, I was like, there's no way they could have put all of this in the film. It would have just been like too no. much. But what they did choose to talk about, you know, obviously was horrific enough. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like it, I mean, and uh, it's also j- interesting too, like the dad. So, I mean, I love this actor, despite the fact that he might, in real life, have some weird politics. I'm just saying, like you know, <laughs> I don't know. But Nick Searcy, who plays Sylvia's dad, he's like yeah. a, such a great Southern, like almost like a character actor, and he's in and Justified, he was in Justified. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and so it was surprised seeing him mm-hmm. not as the character he plays in Justified, exactly. But oh my god, I mean, I don't even know if. If if this is a spoiler, if you, if if you think I shouldn't talk about it, I won't talk about it. But no, it's um, it's
1: a real case, so I think let's. But there's no spoilers to be had because we know what happens. Yeah, in real life.
0: So uh, in the movie, there's this whole scenario where Sylvia escapes. Paula helps her escape. Ricky helps her escape. They go. Ricky dr- drives her to her parents. Mm -hmm. And then she reveals, like, all of the horrible things that have been happening, and then they go to the house to get the sister. And it's just that moment where you're like, you know that that is not how it ended up, right? right? But just that moment of, like, what could have happened in a much better scenario from this story... Rocked me, like I was like, I am fucking rocked by this. like this what if you know what yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. And what if this had happened a month earlier? What if this had happened at the very from the first time they got hit? What if this had happened right away? Like it just it is truly unbelievable because in that moment, what you're seeing in the film, what I love about how they portrayed it is that this is Sylvia dying. Like her dying thoughts are essentially the way they portrayed it in the film. What if I was saved? And it's fucking heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. Oh. Oh. Definitely. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was. A, it was heavy. Not gonna yeah. lie.
1: But... And then there's there's definitely a, a moment um, in the end of the film that was ripped right from real life, where Jenny, who's been coached to lie about what has happened to Sylvia. You know, Ricky calls the cops, they show up because now they have this dead body in the house to contend with. And the whole time, Gertrude's saying she's faking it. That was real, like right from real life. Mm. Um, But she wasn't faking it, she was dead. And um, Jenny at first lies to the police and says, you know, yep, some boys came and, you know, she showed up and they must have done something to her. But then as soon as Jenny gets them by themselves, these police officers. She says, "You get me out of here, and I'll tell you everything." Wow! And that is a true statement from real life. Like that is how she extricated herself from that situation, and got the story out. So Jenny, her younger sister, is the reason that this story was able to be told. Wow. She, you know, she had enough courage, and was able to see that like this was her way out of this abusive cycle um, from this maniac. And she jumped on it, so I think that was a really brave and important moment that she you know kind of could not help Sylvia or do anything to fend off her abusers in 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 life while Sylvia was alive, but she did expose what happened and kind of help tell the true story in in death,
0: yeah well i uh I'm glad I saw this movie i mean it was it was a hard watch for sure should have definitely not watched it right before bed.
1: Agree. I'll agree. say that
0: again. Oh, well, your movies. But um I'm I'm glad that you decided to talk about it. It's good. It's a it's it's I think a well done movie. The the beginning of it is so buoyant with all of the music and the records mm-hmm. and stuff. And of course of course it's like setting you up from this horrible Second half, but it's like, you know, the music and the, and the clothes and the, it's kind of, yeah. I mean, it is kind of like a perfect setup for a horror movie,
1: you know? Absolutely. and um, Absolutely.
0: It's kind of what it feels like. It feels like a horror movie.
1: Yeah. The whole time it's happening, you're like, I wish this was not real. I wish yeah. this, and when you're watching the film and then remembering that it's a real case, it's like an extra layer of pain hits you. Yeah. We are like, holy fuck, not only is this a very complicated and dark and disturbing horror film, this really happened.
0: Yeah, that was hard for me to, like, kind of go back and forth about, right? Because I was mm-hmm. just, like, constantly going back to the Wikipedia and, like, reading a little bit more and then watching the movie and, like, yeah. I mean, I suspect that that's probably the case with a lot of, like, true crime films of, like, really horrific crimes is just... It's probably never actually an easy task to try to make a narrative film out of some horrific event. So Exactly.
1: Exa- exactly. And again, I th- I think the way in and what gave us a way to really see Sylvia mm-hmm. and honor Sylvia and see the humanity of that character is that El- Elliot Page played played it so well. Like yeah. I think he's he really just kind of knocked it out of the park um with again that kind of emotional acting that he does so so well.
0: Yeah. Totally agree.
1: Well, on to something else. Mm, mm,
0: <coughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Let's continue down this road uh with uh the theme Papa can you hear me? So my movie for the theme is a film from 1980. It was written by Jacob Brackman. Uh the story was initially conceived by Alan Moyle and Leanne Unger. It was directed by Alan Moyle, and it's called Times Square. This is Nicki Murata, famous murderer and entertainer. I'm throwing a concert tonight in Times Square. Celebrate my escape from mental illness. Don't miss it. Okay, so, like, many moons ago now, I feel like, I brought this movie called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains to the pod. Mm -hmm. Which I feel like is sort of a kindred spirit to this movie, even though Times Square came out before The Fabulous Danes. But, you know, I think we've gone on record many times on this podcast talking about stories about young women and female friendships. And so, of course, it was only time before I got to Times Square. But um, (laughs) here's a one sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Here's a one sentence synopsis. Two young women from different stations in life who have formed a bond as roommates in a mental health facility make a daring escape to live free and fantastic lives on the streets of New York City. Uh, Um, yes, very cool. And so I will say this. I, for a very long time, this movie was unavailable or at least wasn't available in a good quality. mm. Um and i obviously think it had a lot to do with the music because there was so much popular mov- music in this film we'll talk about it in just a second but absolutely as, as we know you know a lot of times with film rights if a film is not available on dvd or blu-ray or like on streaming services there's probably a rights issue and the rights issue is a lot of times clearing the music for things so there you go mm-hmm. but it's now out On Blu-ray, Kino put out a copy of it. Looks great. So the inspiration for Times Square was based on this random diary that was found by Alan Moyle, the director, in a thrift store couch. So I guess they bought like a secondhand couch. They found a diary in it. And the diary was by this young girl. And it was essentially a diary written by a young girl who was living life out in the street. And it was rough and unpleasant at times, and I think they were just really curious about this girl's life and you know all the things that she talked about in her diary. And so Alan Moyle and Leanne Unger wrote a script about it, and then it caught the attention of this very famous music and film producer named Robert Stigwood. And Robert Stigwood is probably most um, known for working with the Bee Gees, but he also produced films like Grease and Saturday Night Fever. So... um, Wow. Yeah, so he... So basically what happened was, with Stigwood involved, right, the movie kind of became, in a weird way, I think his goal was to make it kind of like the new wave version of like, a Saturday Night Fever. Like, to make the movie Mm kind of this big music soundtrack film, just like Saturday Night Fever. Um, And so, Tim Curry, the actor Tim Curry, who's in this film, he was kind Uh, of one of the first people cast for it, even though the leads, the two leads of this film, were basically young teenage girls who were pretty much unknown 15-year-old Robin Johnson, who plays a girl named Nikki Murata, and 13-year-old Trini Alvarado, who plays Pamela Pearl. So they're kind of like the two girls who star in this film. And they are the stars of the show. I mean, especially Robin Johnson, who, when I first saw this movie, she just rocked me. Like, her whole vibe and and, i mean of course like i connected to her because she's this like streetwise foul-mouthed punk rock girl and she's got a really gravelly voice and she seems much older than she actually is like just even robin as you know a girl as an actress right? right and so the setup of the film is this right so nikki and pamela they first meet at the New York Neurological Hospital, okay? And they are roommates. And they're sort of being treated similarly for conditions that I don't think are really totally fleshed out in the film. No, Right? I would argue maybe that's intentional or maybe circumstance that... I'll talk about
1: later. I felt like it was intentional because what the movie really seems to be saying is like there's nothing wrong with them. Yes, like this is the reaction of people not understanding teen girls it's like, well, let's see what's wrong with their brains because we can't figure it out. That's a hundred percent what I
0: think too. But there was there's also this other thing about the film which I'll I'll talk about in a little bit about kind of storylines that were omitted and stuff that maybe might contribute to this too. But yeah, that is a huge theme of the film is obviously like the concept of young women being quote unquote crazy and we don't know how to handle them and we don't understand them. So let's just like get them out of the way. Just put them, lock them up, put them in a hospital and Mm -hmm. give them medication type of thing, which is part of the reason why I picked it for this theme, obviously. But yeah, so here's so here's the thing. Like, so they have this hospital in common even though they're completely of different of different stations in life, so Nikki, obviously, a runaway, very streetwise New York City kind of kid, you know, she plays guitar and she wants to she loves punk rock. I mean, she's like playing the Ramones. I want to be sedated like the entire time she's in the hospital. And she's got this very anti-establishment attitude. But, you know, at the same time, she's had a lot of trauma in her life, and she's been in and out of institutions and whatnot. and her social worker is played by Anna Maria Hosford, who we know as Thelma from Amen, and we've talked about her before on the pod. I mean,
1: can, can we get her on the pod? Because this is now turning <laughs> into a secret love affair with Anna Maria Horsford. <laughs> I agree. Um, I love when she pops up. I love seeing her. I love seeing her pop up in any film.
0: A hundred percent, me too. And really, she's pretty much the only character, really, I mean, besides maybe Johnny LaGuardia, sort of, um, that kind of understands at least a little bit about their situations. But, you know, she at least gets that Nikki is kind of, the system has failed her for her entire life. And... She at least is cognizant of that, right? Meanwhile, you have Pamela, okay? She's the daughter of this, like, wealthy New York politician. Single father, because her mother has passed away. The dad works for the mayor's office, and he has this mission to clean up Times Square,
1: right? Oh, my God. Which, the you, as you nature.
0: know, <laughs> a huge issue at the time,
1: right? The prophetic nature of that was not lost on me <laughs> yes
0: a hundred percent and you know we talk we've talked about times square old times square the 42nd street forever the grind houses like we've talked about that on the pod many many times so you know imagine in the early 80s you know that's still kind of this vibe and then you have this mayor's office commissioner guy who's like we're gonna change it we're gonna change it and then eventually they did change it right so yeah
1: and it turned totally. into a fucking olive garden.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. MTV TRL shit like <laughs> crazy.
1: And there's there's something that I love about this film and and watching this is that it's it's a constant conflict for me because I do in my heart believe that cities should adapt and change. In order to survive. But I also think that every time I go to Times Square, I just want to fucking barf. Because like, like, you don't want the safe, like, yes, being safe and being whatever. Like, all of that matters. But there are certain parts of the soul of a city that live in some of the old buildings or some of, you know, even if you're, it's not going to stay the same business, it's like, I don't know, there's something that's lost in the translation of trying to make it an, an evolved city. And I think that's a lot of, a conflict that a lot of people feel. But, you know, I, I do think that cities need to change and adapt and evolve, but I also think that it's a little bit sad when they do.
0: Yeah, But also, too, you're never going to get rid of the den of iniquity. Like, you're, 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 you're no. never going to fucking shut the red light district down. It's just going to go somewhere else. Like Exactly. That's what's happening in Atlanta, like, constantly. You know what I mean? It's just that thing yep. of, like, You can clean out the titty bars or whatever, but and put olive gardens there, but it's like that it will it will pop up somewhere else. It's people just need their titty bars. Okay? (laughs)
1: Jesus. (laughs) I know we didn't record it, but at the top of the at the top of the show, you were talking about a TV show, a reality TV show, about these two women who were in wrestling, and you you thought the name of the show was Tough Titties. <laughs> <laughs> the Tough Titty bars will survive. <laughs> they will sprout up.
0: Just just as much as you, like, heal your zit, the zit will pop back up somewhere else, okay? Like, it's human Absolutely. nature. Absolutely. Give me a break. So, here's the thing. This is the father of the, this girl, Pamela, who, you know, m- unlike Nikki, she's reserved, quiet, she loves poetry, she writes a lot in her diary. and She's just kind of the opposite of Nikki. She's kind of like a meeker type of girl, right? But the thing is, is that, you know, she is definitely, like, going through it. She's a teenager. You know, her mom has passed away. Like, she's got issues She's she's dealing with, but You know, her father, of course, is like, well, she's just, like, depressed or something, so I don't know what to do about that, so let me just put her in this hospital, this facility, so I can go to my meetings, my high-level fucking city meetings, and then I'll just let these doctors deal with it. Like, he'll just solve the problem with money, right? And that has probably been her entire life. And it's interesting, too, because, like, in the scenes in the beginning, when they first show up at the hospital, it's, like, completely obvious the difference in care that money gives you. Because, you know, Pamela is, like, getting all the doctors by her bedside, and they're fussing over her. And then, like, on the other side of the room, Nikki is just kind of sitting there on her own, you know, like, Mm -hmm. nobody's really going over to her or fussing and paying attention to her. So that's, like, you know, obviously, like... The difference between these two girls, right? Absolutely. And um, Pamela's dad, who's played by this actor, Peter Caulfield, he's like a, the epitome of that, of that like out of touch politician dad. I mean, he's just like using all his connections to help his kid, even though he doesn't even really know her, or what she wants, or anything. It's just total typical, Papa, can you hear me? And he's like, mm-hmm. Nope
1: you know <laughs> not even on the not, same fucking frequency <laughs> absolutely not so
0: they eventually build a friendship despite their odds and then Nikki is finally released no idea if she's actually better or anything like she just is like you're out of here and then eventually like comes back and encourages Pamela to like sneak out with her right so this is kind of where the movie you know, gets kicked into high gear. Because they bust out of the hospital, they steal an ambulance, and then they decide to hide out in, like, an abandoned building near the Chelsea Piers, I think.
1: Oh, my God. It is shocking to see that kind of shit. And at one point, Nikki says something to the effect of, like, uh, are you afraid of drowning? And she's looking around the you know, this abandoned building they're living in. And my first thought was, like, are you afraid of typhus? Because there's, like, a lot more coming to for you before a fucking drowning will.
0: Absolutely. And here's... <laughs> this place this, is gross. This place is gross. And here's what I have to say about all of this, because I think it has to be said. Like, this, this film is obviously shot on location in New York City, and it really, at times, doesn't shy away from showing... These young girls sort of interacting with people who are like living and working in New York City and in Times Square. But this film is a fantasy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't get twisted. Like, and I have to say that I had this fantasy when I was their age. Like, I definitely right. <laughs> wanted to escape the boring burbs and, you know, go down to the city, go to a downtown and where it's where to me, Downtown was always this, like, exhilarating world filled with, like, crazy characters and vibrant street life. And, you know, it isn't until much later. And I think that in the this film in particular, I mean, it's like, think about it. If you, like, the reality of people who were actually, like, living and working in Times Square in, like, 1980 and the peers and stuff, I mean, like, yeah it was bleak, right? <laughs> it is not, like, a fantastical teenage girl fantasy world where they, like get to create this, like, neat clubhouse in an abandoned Absolutely building not. with no incident. No incident.
1: Listen, my great-aunt lived in the Brooklyn Navy Yard for most of her life. And it is not the Brooklyn Navy Yard that is na- that exists now. And my great-grandmother, whenever we would go into the city, uh, we'd get off the bus at the Port Authority, which is right in Times Square. And she would grab my fucking hand And look at me and be like, if you let go of my hand, essentially, you're gone. Like, we will lose you to the fucking streets. Right. And I'm, like, seven years old looking at, like, you know, fucking neon titties. Like, people, (laughs) it was just, like, the fucking most horrifying place. Yeah. And she was like, if you let go of my hand, I don't know you anymore because you are going to be lost to these fucking streets. And I'm like, this is a lot at seven. And then we'd go to the fucking Brooklyn Navy Yard, and I'm like... This city is scary. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And, like, to me,
0: it's okay that a movie makes a fantasy out of, like, a real thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, because basically what happens is, like, these girls are, like, living in this abandoned building. They're gallivanting around New York City, hustling people at card games, washing windshields. They're stealing, outright stealing. They try to actually rob a guy at gunpoint, but then they just start laughing. And it's just <laughs> that <laughs> thing where like instead of it like like if you you have to divorce the reality of like what you know, right you just be like this is like a Harold and Maude thing. Like they're just it is a whimsical fantasy of
1: what you could have happen? to also it is such a spec- like a specifically white girl fantasy yes i know I like know. we're just gonna rob people haha ha. we're just gonna run around <laughs> scamming people and you're like this is a white girl fantasy because at any one of these turns if this was a person of color they would be the movie would end they'd be in jail for the rest of their fucking life
0: oh and like nothing is more true to that point then the idea that Pamela gets a job working in a topless bar and she doesn't have to get topless.
1: She refuses. She's like, P.S., I'm 13. I will work at this bar illegally, but I ain't taking my clothes off. And the owner's like, I like that. That's classy. Like, there's no (laughs) way. I was like, and and she gets to wear, like, her Kate Bush, like,
0: uh, Wuthering Heights video outfit thing, like, where she's wearing, like, full tights. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like she's where she looks like a woodland fairy creature, oh and I'm like, there is no way this no this way. would happen. Like, you know, and obviously we don't encourage thirteen year old girls to work in topless bars. Like, it's I'm not saying like, oh my god, she didn't get topless. What a this is fake. No, I would just say that like in the in the context of this story, right? You know, it's outrageous.
1: It's just outrageous that, that all would of it is a fantasy. All of it is yeah. a fantasy. Yeah.
0: So, there's this local Times Square DJ that Nikki and Pamela are obsessed with, and his name is Johnny LaGuardia. He is obviously played by Tim Curry, right? And here's the thing about this character. So, Johnny LaGuardia, he's kind of like an old head. He's like an old Times Square guy. He wants it not to change. He resents the fuck out of Pamela's dad for trying to gentrify his neighborhood, okay? And th- these girls love him cuz he plays new wave and punk rock music and he's kind of got this like anti-establishment attitude. And you know, what ends up happening is that he kind of speaks to them through the radio and he's like and incur- he's kind of exacerbating the situation really where he's just like yes, mm-hmm. fuck the rules. Play punk music like you're cool and he has this like he has since he has this like personal vendetta against pamela's dad i mean he loves the fact that his daughter is like running away from him you know Mm -hmm. so in a weird way he kind of he kind of is gassing these girls up
1: Yeah, he's Um, using them for his own agenda.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, he understands them, but he also is like, well, I also have a, a need for this, too, in my own way, so let's keep it going, right? And so what ends up happening is that they're out on the streets, they're working, they're, like, hustling, they're doing their thing, and, of course, Pamela's dad gets... You know, he get he he turns into this maniac trying to find his daughter. And of course he blames Nikki for kidnapping her. Um, because, you know, he's so out of touch. He, oh, like my daughter could never walk away, you know, on her own. She'd have to be kidnapped by this, you know, mutant street kid or whatever. And there's this one point where he actually finds Nikki on the street and he starts hitting her, which yeah. is super fucking disturbing and you know like when i said earlier that i feel like this movie does have darkness this is one of the moments
1: right absolutely absolutely
0: so okay in the way is that it does resemble ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains. so eventually these girls start calling themselves the sleaze sisters and they start performing like songs on johnny laguardia's radio show and they're pulling pranks like they're throwing fucking TVs out of windows
1: terrifying again <laughs>
0: Terrifying. <laughs> which I know that this was a movie that uh, you know had probably had some sort of order but there are the scenes of of this where they're throwing TVs out the window and there are literally people like three feet shy of a TV that's being thrown from, like, the 20th floor of a Mm. high-rise. I was like, I really hope they fucking, like, it seemed like nobody knew it was going to happen, is what I'm saying.
1: (laughs) Like, I hope those were extras, essentially. I hope those were extras. I
0: hope this wasn't, like, pure documentary where they just, like, were like, all right, throw the TV out now, and all these people didn't know. Because it seemed like... At the, when you watch it in the movie that those people did not know. Like, they, like, right. literally, like, holy fuck! Like, it was scary, to be honest.
1: <laughs> and it's it's a perpetual fear. Like, eventually you just get over it, but it is a perpetual fear in New York City, like, walking around New York City, like, oh, an air conditioner could just drop out of a window any moment.
0: Yes. Oh, my God, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's just like, so... It doesn't,
1: it doesn't even have to be malicious. It could just be like, yeah, it fell. Yeah. <laughs> like, it fell, and now you're dead. And you're like, ah.
0: yeah. And, like, here's the thing. So, like, you know, Nikki is loving it. She's like, this is fucking cool and punk rock, and we're making a statement here. You know, and Pamela starts, you know, she starts getting a little conscious. Like, she's like, I don't know. This seems dangerous and fucked up, right?
1: And what I like about it, too, is that Pamela's kind of like, uh, like, Nikki wants to be famous. And she's like, oh, people know us, and, like, we could be famous. And Pamela's like, I don't know if I'm cool with that. Like, that's not why I'm doing it.
0: A hundred percent. I think that yeah, their their kind of agendas start to diverge, right? Yeah. And Johnny LaGuardia is like he's saying, Oh my god, these girls, they're like a sensation. And so he starts activating all these like young girl listeners, you know, in the city. To becoming their fans, and that—that's what I mean. Like the the Fabulous Stains connection, where there is a, a scene eventually where like all the girls come dressed up in garbage bags, and you know they're kind of like worshiping the Sleaze Sisters. It's so it's very Fabulous Stains to me. I think it goes without that saying though. Like the this movie is best known for its soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It is top fucking notch. There's a couple of really great scenes in the film that are set to really, really cool songs. Like, there's a scene of the two girls that are, like, dancing down 42nd Street to Life During Wartime by the Talking Heads, Mm -hmm. which I love so much. It's, like, one of my favorite parts of the film. And more to the point of our theme, there's this other scene where Pamela's, Pamela's dad finds out that she's dancing, not topless, at the Cleopatra Club. And he sneaks into the club one night and sees his daughter on stage dancing to Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed with like a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And I was like, is that not daddy's horse nightmare
1: fucking I- scenario? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> what hath I wrought? <laughs> listening now, motherfucker. He's listening now. I,
0: I know. It's like, imagine walking into a titty bar and being like, oh, there's my daughter dancing to Walk on the Wild Side with like, I mean, it's just... My 13-year-old daughter. Yes, yes. And that song is absolutely fucking perfect for that specific moment. And I was like, damn, this is... Oh, He's God. probably shitting right now.
1: And there's also, they use... um uh, Patti Smith's pissing in a river. Yeah, And such a great scene, too, where you're really... Because I think for so much of the movie, Nikki is portrayed as this very cartoonish character, but then there's this scene that's, like, very emotional where you start to kind of see her interior life peeking out a bit and her emotional life peeking out a bit. And that song is even perfect for that moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, you it, it, like, there is actually an article online that... um with the music supervisor for the film, and it's super interesting. I would cu- encourage you guys to look it up. But, um, yeah, I mean, the soundtrack, it was like a double LP. I think I actually had the soundtrack before I watched the film, to be honest. Man. Um, and it's just, there's just so much good music, and it's of the era, and it it, it really makes these scenes pop in a, in a huge way. So the other thing about the film that I will say... Um, that I think is very interesting. And maybe it's kind of discussed more now than maybe back then. But So Alan Moyle, the director, I think, obviously knowing the origin story of of the story, of him finding a diary, right? I think his vision for the film was a lot different than Robert Stigwood's, right? I think Mm. that the director wanted it almost to be more of like an indie film. And Robert Stigwood clearly, you know, wanted it to be a more commercial vehicle with the big soundtrack and whatnot. And I know that the director left the film at some point and I feel like he wasn't involved with the editing. Mm. Right? And because of that, like, there apparently was a lot more to the relationship between Nikki and Pamela, okay? And according to what I read and what Alan Moyle had talked about, like, they were supposed to be in love. Like, they were lesbians. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, it was removed from the film. And it's a damn shame. Totally. Because I think it, it, it would explain a lot more.
1: You know yes. what I mean? Yeah, you can see that kind of disjointedness in the movie at points. And now that you're explaining this, it makes total sense. But I think it would have been... It would have helped the story to see the love story progress, but I think it also would have been like really revolutionary and cool yes. to kind of see that as not just like, here are these two girls who escape from this neurological place and they're just best friends now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think especially with with Nikki, as we start to get into her emotions more. And the pain of seeing Pamela pull away and yes. maybe making moves to go back to her former life, that would have been so much more, that would have hit home a lot harder if it had been a love story.
0: Absolutely what I think, too. And like, because there is, the thing that is interesting is they actually still kept the scene where Nikki has a breakdown, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she paints kind of like, um you know, like a mask around her eyes and she goes to the radio station and, you know, she just has this huge emotional break on air, but then, you know, eventually they actually switch her off because I think it's just too raw, right? Yeah. But she talks, she kind of alludes to this idea that there are things that she meant to tell Pamela and didn't tell her and she wished she did. And... I think that that is i I think part of their love story that didn't get fleshed out and was removed from the film, and I'm like, well, then that explains so much right. about her and her character, you know what I mean, and I just feel like, what a fucking shame to have that taken out and absolutely and i and I also had read that Alan Moyle, I think said that um. That footage, that cut footage of all that, is like lost. So they can't, they can't even do a director's cut, at least at the Ugh. current time, because he doesn't know where it is. Basically,
1: um, yeah, because I mean, I'm sure once he left, they were like, "Fuck it, trash it, goodbye." Yeah. Oh, that's a shame.
0: Yeah, it's a shame. But you know what? Like, I I I hate that that happened, and you know that happens a lot, obviously, in film. Um, where something like that just kind of changes the way that the characters act and relate to each other. And I mean, I think it's interesting. It's a shame, but it's also like, you know, kind of like a an interesting tidbit to ponder of yeah. like how the story could have been better if this would have happened, right? If, but, you're um, listen-
1: if you're listening to this before you watch the film and you watch the film knowing that that could have been a plot point, I think it'll change yeah. the viewing for you.
0: Definitely did for me, too. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I, I, I love Times Square. I mean, it's such a snapshot of a time and place. You know, I I think it's obvious we love 42nd Street, the old 42nd Street, the friendship between these two girls, and just, like, the punk spirit of the film and the music just really you know, fires on all cylinders for me. And, I mean, like, Absolutely. you you can't, like, start a movie with Roxy music and not, and I not love it. Like, it just is a great film. And, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's a lot going on in the film. It There are moments where it's dark, um, obviously, but I, I do feel it is a fantasy, of, like, a young girl's fantasy of what it would be like to, like, run away from your parents and, like, go to the city, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... I just connect with that so much.
1: I agree. I thought this was a great choice. I love seeing it. I'd only seen it like t- once or twice before. Yeah, at that, that like maybe one full time, and then like half it came on TV and I watched it. Yeah. like the end of it. Um, and I loved it. I just really, I really like. I mean, the the characters are kind of like Nikki's kind of annoying when you first met meet her, but then they take her on such a journey, and then mm-hmm. you know Pamela. It's it's. Like you said, it's that fantasy, like that teen girl fantasy of if I could find someone who could get me. And I just love that that comes in the form of another girl that she's thrown in with and um, they get to have this great adventure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that on the um, Kino Blu-ray, there is a commentary track with I think the director and like Robin Johnson. Nice. Um, Because her career is interesting too. I think she was... I think she left the business at a certain point, but she is so dynamic. I mean, they both are. They really are, like, great actresses. And, but Robin Johnson just got, like, this, you know, apparently she was, like, found cutting class. Like, it's that classic story of, like, here's a non-actor they found being a juvie you yeah. know, to play a juvie, basically.
1: <laughs> so I love it. She has some of the funniest lines in the movie. Like, there's a, a, one point when they're deciding who's gonna, like, why <laughs> why Pamela's the one dancing at the Cleo Club. And Nikki's like, well, it's because you're pretty. Like, look at me, I'm a disaster. Like, she just has these really <laughs> funny lines that yeah. make her just really, she was something very, very dynamic and special and charismatic.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Well... Listen, we got through it. It was a good week, a good week of movies.
1: I love this week of movies. Dark, dark as fuck. Yeah. But <laughs> sometimes you got to have the darkness so I, that you can appreciate the dark movies we're going to bring you next week. I,
0: I absolutely <laughs> agree. Um, but listen, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com.
1: And we, you can find us on our social media at I saw pod mm-hmm. on Instagram and Twitter.
0: That's right. We've got merch as well. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it.
1: And our bonus episodes are still dropping. We've got a new schedule now, so you'll have new bonus episodes on the main feed every third Thursday of the month. And then we're going to start slowly trickling out bonus episodes into the main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. I think there are a few episodes up now, like th- maybe three or four episode- old episodes up now. Um And that means on some weeks, you're going to hear us on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday.
0: Whoa, amazing. Well, okay. Do you want to tell them the movies for next week?
1: Oh, I do. Your movies for next week are One Hour Photo from 2002 and Bright Lights, Big City from 1988.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you.
1: Truly love it. Until next week. Yep. See you next time. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod, and you can email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.